glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. First Chronicles chapter 12. We're just going to read verses 38 through 40, as I said, and then we're going to go to some other places and, uh, and see four things tonight about Israel and their king. Verse 38 of 1 Chronicles 12. All these men of war that could keep rank came with a perfect heart to Hebron to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest also of Israel were of one heart to make David king. And there they were with David three days, eating and drinking, for their brethren had prepared for them. Moreover, they that were nigh them, even unto Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, brought bread on asses and on camels and on mules and on oxen and meat, meal, cakes of figs and bunches of raisins and wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly, for there was joy in Israel. I don't know of anybody that doesn't want to live in verse 40. Honestly, I don't know of anybody that says, I don't want the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I don't want abundance of life. I think every believer wants the abundant Christian life. We want that. That's what's described in verse 40 in a very in a physical way as a spiritual application. That's abundance. There was joy in Israel. But the joy in Israel came as a result of the unity between God's people in recognizing God's choice for the king in their life. That's how it came. May I say it comes the same way in our life. You can be indwelt by the Spirit. How long? During that 10-year period, if it was 10 years or so, when David had been anointed king by God but not been recognized as king by Israel, how long during that period was David living? The entire time. Was there joy in Israel? There was not. You know why? Because there was conflict. Because the nation was divided between loyalty to Saul and loyalty to David. Uh, The old song says loyalty, loyalty, yes, loyalty, to Christ. We need a revival in churches and in Christian families and in Christian hearts of this concept of loyalty to the Savior. It's a Bible truth. Amen. I said this morning, this morning's message, Christ will bring us to a point of decision. He will, where we will either choose Him or the things of this world. Demas was brought to that point, he made a bad choice. Others were brought to that point and made a right choice. Each, there's numerous people, especially young people in this room, that have been brought to that point of decision of choosing, am I going to pursue earthly pleasures, possessions, and things, or am I going to obey and follow Christ? A point of decision. We would like to boot that decision down the road if we can. Sometimes we come to that point of decision, we call it a crossroads, where the narrow way intersects the broad way, and I'm not, I don't want to muddy the waters, you're either on the broad way or the narrow way, but even in that narrow way, are you going to continue to follow the Savior? We have a decision to make of a carnal decision, and how we're ultimately going to live and spend our lives, and we want to tarry at that crossroads, entertaining the carnal life, while knowing we need to live the spiritual life. But we must decide. The Lord will not tarry there forever. He'll say, come follow me. And so here, while Israel had been at the crossroads of loyalty to a king for a number of years, there came a point where the conflict came to a climax and they had to choose what they were going to do with David. Now let's go back in their history, go back to 1 Kings chapter 8. And I'm going to go back to the choosing of the first king. And that would be King Saul. Now you remember God had warned them about not choosing a king in the Old Testament law. And he had said, when you do, he knew his people. 
And he said, when you choose a king, I believe it was back in the book of Deuteronomy, this is the kind of king you need to choose. And he gave some instructions. Uh, Basically, it was you're not supposed to have a king, but you will choose one. And so when you do, make sure he doesn't multiply wives or horses or silver or gold. Uh, When you choose a king, that he's to walk in my law and write a copy of my law so that he can govern God's way. God had given some requirements about that. But I want to look at the context of how the nation chose their king and how they got a king like Saul ruling over them in the first place. And I understand God picked Saul, but God picked a king like the people that picked him, that wanted one. He chose a king that was like them. They chose a king in rebellion against God's authority, and God gave them a rebel. God gave them someone like them to rule over them. I think, let me just say this from a political standpoint, the United States of America ought to wake up and look at the kind of men... God is allowing to rule over us. He would tell us something about our spiritual character or lack thereof if we would pay attention to the kind of men that God is letting rule us. It has something to say about our lack of character spiritually as a nation. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled... I'm in the wrong place. Forgive me. That is not where I wish to be. And how 1 Samuel 8. I'm sorry. Forgive me. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. Why I wrote Kings, I have no idea. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, It came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, and took bribes, and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together, and came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, And thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now go down, if you would, to verses 19 and 20. It says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. So Samuel had pleaded with them and said, It's wrong of you to want a king. God will rule over you. Previous to this, God had been their king. God had been directing them into battle, and he would go with them into battle and fight their battles with them and for them. God would lead them through a judge or a deliverer, but that judge was not a king. He simply was a voice for the Lord to say, this is, this is what God wants, and lead them out there, but he wasn't a king, and yet they wanted to be like the nations around them. So verse 19, 1 Samuel chapter 8, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, let's notice a few things about this request for a king. In these verses, they make a request for a king. They say to Samuel, look, you're old. Your sons are not of the spiritual character you are. So instead of another judge, we can't foresee good leadership in the future. Get us a king. Someone like the nations around us, someone with with more, you know what a king has over a judge? More authority. Get us someone who will be more, will make more of our decisions for us. Get us someone who will have more power, more control in our lives. Can you imagine asking such a thing? But one of the things I've noticed about human beings is that we often prefer dictatorship over biblical spiritual leadership. Because then that relieves us of our responsibility. They had a judge that told them what God wanted and then they had to decide whether or not they were going to do it. They did not have a judge that made them do what God said. That's not the judge's job. The judge was to say, this is what God wants, this is what we're going to do, and they decided whether or not they would follow God's direction. There were battles. Some of the people went to battle. Some of the people stayed home. 
they decided. You can read the book of Judges. That's the way it worked. But if you get a king, he is going to go to you and forcibly say, you'll serve in my army, you'll serve in my army. Sir, I'm a shepherd. That doesn't matter. You're a soldier now. And you, you're going to be a chef in my kitchen, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. And he would start... God warned him that's what he's going to do. He will increase... Isn't it amazing how rebels get stronger authority in their life than if they weren't? You ever, you ever noticed that? And you've heard this before, but you get some kid that says, I cannot stand my parents telling me what to do. I want to go join the Marine Corps. Are you an idiot? <laughs> Absolutely. You know how that works. Some woman says, I don't, I can't stand my mom telling me what to do. I'm going to get married. And then you marry some jerk that wants you to wait on him hand and foot, pick up everything he lays down and be his personal maid. You, you mark it down. Some rebellious girl ends up marrying a jerk because she doesn't want authority in her life. It's truth. We've watched it. The adults in this room can say, man, that's, that is right. So here's what happens. These people are disgruntled with their divinely appointed authority. And so what do they say? Give us a king. How foolish. Their choice of a king was made in folly. It was a choice that was carnal. It was a choice based on conformity. You know what they said? We want to be like all the nations around us. We can't stand to be different. All of them, all of them have a king. They have, a, they have an absolute authority in their life that tells them everything to do. You know, you know I believe we want dictators because it makes our life easier and we have somebody to blame when we don't do what's right. They said, now notice, here's where I'm basing that on. Look back down to verse 20. He says that we all, that we also may be like all the nations, that's conformity, then that our king may judge us and go out before us. And notice the next statement. And do what? And fight our battles. We want another person to fight our battles for us. Now listen to me tonight. As a Christian, the flesh says, I don't want to fight battles. I just want the victory. I don't want the battle. May I say something to you tonight? You aren't saved by fighting battles, but you're going to serve God by fighting battles. God compares the Christian life to service. God compares the Christian life to soldiering. And God calls us into battle. You say, well, God said he'd fight our battles for us. But he didn't say we wouldn't go to battle and fight. God only fights your battles for you when you get in the battle and fight. And may I say tonight, there was a bunch of carnal people that said, we want relieved of our responsibility to fight the enemy. So we want a king who rally up some troops and we don't know where he's going to get his army from, but we want him to fight our battles for us. That's what carnal thinking does. It says, I want the victory. I want the joys of not being defeated by my enemies, but I don't actually want to get in the fight. Young people tonight, your parents cannot fight your spiritual battles for you. We can fight with you, toe by toe to toe, hand in hand, side by side, but we cannot fight for you. As your pastor, I love you, but I cannot fight your spiritual battles, and you can't fight mine. You must fight your own battles. You must face your lust. You must face the devil. And you must decide we're going to war. But these people didn't like war. They wanted to sit back and have the spoils of victory without a battle. And I want to say tonight that we need some fire in us to say we have a foe and we need to fight him. Not wait on somebody else to fight him for us. One of the things that God has helped me with is... A pastor and as a dad, you can get the idea, it's my job to fight people's spiritual battles. It is not. 
I believe it's my job to join you in them. It's my job and your job to fight those together. But these folks, they said, we want someone else to fight our battles. For Samuel 17, the men of Ephraim said the same thing. They said to Joshua, we want the mountain, we want more land, but we don't have to fight a battle for it. And he said, it ain't going to work that way. Get thee up, go cut down the wood, go drive out the enemy, but that's how you're going to get more land. Now, if you want more victory in your life tonight spiritually, you may say, how can I have victory without fighting battles? You be careful, that's flesh speaking. That's the flesh that wants that. It wants the, the spoils of victory without the rigors of battle. It wants the crown without overcoming temptation. It doesn't work that way. And, but that's what, they, that's what caused them. It was in this frame of mind that they said, give us a king, someone to run our lives, someone to make our decisions for us. It was a carnal choice. It was a choice of conformity. It was a choice of complacency, if you would, in that they said, we want someone else to fight our battles for us. That's the request for a king. Now, you know what they got out of that. Who did they get as a king? Oh, they got someone that was willing to be a king, all right. Not at first. At first, he was reluctant. God said, you're the next king. He said, not me. I'm of the least family of the smallest tribe. Why are you picking me? And God would remind him later, you were, you were doing fine when you were little in your own eyes, Saul. And I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing. But give the flesh an inch and it wants a mile. That's why Saul's a picture of the flesh. Once he was given the position of king, he was inflated and he wanted everything. And he was never willing to cede that throne to anyone else. And so then, uh, that's who they got. God gave them King Saul. As you well know, Saul would rebel. That brings us to our next point. There was the request for a king, but then there was the rejection of that king. Now, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Verses 13 and 14. Let's back up to verse 11. <clears throat> what has happened here is Samuel has taken upon, excuse me, Saul has taken upon him the role of priest. He presumed to do what he was not allowed to do. He offered a sacrifice to God uh, instead of waiting on Samuel. And so verse 11 says, and Samuel said, what hast thou done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. How spiritual. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. What a spiritual guy. We couldn't go into battle without entreating God. And Samuel, you weren't here disgruntled with his spiritual authority, was he not? And therefore, I had to do your job for you. Isn't that exactly the kind of people that he was ruling over? He said, you're old, Samuel, and slow. We're here on He didn't say you're old, but that he's insinuating. You are here, and so I, I forced myself to disobey God that I might obey God. Does fleshly reasoning ever make sense? But hear me tonight. I hear Christians using this kind of reasoning all the time. Well, I know that's sin, but I had to do it. Because if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to do this right thing over here. May I say this? God will never give you a commandment that causes you to disobey another one. He'll never conflict with his own character. Amen? Yes, that's, that's fleshly reasoning. It's, it's irrational. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. 
But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Excuse me, go now to 1 Samuel 16, if you would. We're just giving an overview of this history in relation to Israel's king. They made a request for a king in carnality, in a desire to conform, and in complacency over warfare and fighting their foes. God gave them a king, and this king rebelled against God. 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you were to read, of course, 1 Samuel 15, it speaks of Saul's rebellion. Uh, Saul would go ahead and, when told to destroy the Amalekites, who are a picture of the world, when told to deal with the world appropriately, what did he do? Oh, he let some of them survive. You see, because the flesh is in love with the world. And he let some of those Amalekites survive, even though God had told him not to. He said, kill Agag and kill all the Amalekites, kill all the sheep, kill everything. And Saul said, the people. Now you tell me, what was he operating in? The fear of God or the fear of man? The flesh always operates in the fear of man. I'm not concerned what God thinks me to be, knows me to be. I'm just concerned with what people think I am. I'm not concerned if I'm actually spiritual, but I've got to make sure I appear that way. That's flesh. That's why the Pharisees were hypocrites. There was flesh that was governing there instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, there's not a soul in this room that doesn't have to battle Saul. Saul is our original nature. The original nature wants to be thought to be spiritual while we are devilish inside. We want to be thought as submitted to God when we're rebels inside. We want people to think we're worshipers of God when we're actually deniers and defiers of God. That's Saul. So, said, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. Take a look back in that book again. Every one of us is like that. Our original nature, we are rebels against God. Yet, yet that rebel doesn't want to be seen as such. We'll redefine God's commandments. We'll redefine disobedience in order to project ourselves as something different than we are. The flesh blames other people for our disobedience. The people, Lord, they pressured me. They told me, and this is a good, this is a good test as to who and what is governing your life. If I'm blaming my spiritual authorities for my disobedience, if I'm blaming the culture around me for my disobedience, flesh is on the throne. That's how Saul operated. He rebelled against God. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel calls what he did, as you well know, Rebellion, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Saw it amazing. He rebelled in minor areas, but he would die consulting with a witch the night before he died. That's because rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. When God wouldn't answer him, he went to the devil for his answers. And the devil's emissary for his answers. Make no mistake, if you don't draw nigh to God, you will draw nigh to Satan. If we don't listen to the Word of God, we will listen to Satan's lies. And so then, uh, rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, it says, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry, because the Lord, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Now don't forget that statement, chapter 16, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. In Saul's rejection, it was because of his rebellion, he was deemed unfit to rule. May I say this? Because our flesh is in rebellion against God. When I say flesh, I mean our natural thinking. I'm not just talking about our body. I'm talking about the reasoning that comes with our, with our natural thinking. It is not fit to make decisions. 
fleshly minds are not fit to make decisions. The flesh, and we'll see it in just a moment, cannot please God. Not that it will not. It cannot. Our original nature, it is impossible for the nature we were born with to develop a life that pleases God. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are all those wretched things of immorality and idolatry mentioned there in Galatians chapter 5. And so the flesh cannot produce righteousness and it cannot please God. Therefore, it has been rejected as a means of ruling in our life. It is not to be the decision maker. The lust of the flesh always produce sin. Romans chapter 8, very quickly. Talking about Saul's rebellion brought about Saul's replacement. Saul's rebellion facilitated his replacement. Uh, Romans chapter 8. I believe this, by the way, and I hope you hear this tonight. I don't think the Christian life will ever make sense to you until you get a hold of the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Until you can comprehend that the struggle and the conflict inside of you is to be expected. That is actually a sign that you've been born again. Saul showed no animosity until David had been anointed king. And after he was anointed, 1 Samuel chapter 16, David is anointed. 1 Samuel chapter 18, Saul is throwing javelins his way. Until David came along, Saul didn't feel threatened on his throne. Because the new king had been anointed and put in his place, now Saul senses, I've got some competition and I'm not willing to cede my ground to another. You make no mistake, when God saved you and anointed Jesus Christ to rule your life, that's what Christ means, anointed. He is the anointed Savior and He is the anointed Sovereign to rule your life. And when your flesh found out there was a new king inside of you, it started rebelling. There's a struggle. And you must recognize, may I say there is a victory? And we'll get to that. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That natural mindset we have, that reasoning that reasons according to my pleasures, it reasons based on the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, that mind is the enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Verse 8, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You know why Saul was rejected? Because he would not and could not please God. Once he had rebelled, he is a picture of that old man, that first king in our life, that sinful rebel, and God says, I won't let a rebel rule what belongs to me. Amen? God's not willing to allow that. He rejected Saul because of his rebellion, and he replaced Saul with another. 1 Samuel chapter 16 again, verse 2. So we're talking about Saul's rejection because of his rebellion and therefore he was replaced. A new king was anointed to remove Saul uh, out of his place, uh, to replace him. So it says in verse 2, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto me whom I name unto thee, him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. Can I note something here real quick? Why would the people of Bethlehem tremble when this prophet shows up? You might wonder. 
because they knew things weren't right in their land. They had chosen a king that God was not pleased with. And when the man of God showed up, they thought, are we in trouble? May I say this? Rebellion in the land, whether it's the land of your heart or home or church, produces a spirit of fear. We tremble when the Word of God shows up, afraid we're going to get in trouble. When the man of God shows up, what have I done wrong? When the authority in life shows up, oh no, what have I done? That's what happens when the flesh is ruling. When I'm living according to my impulses and lust and pride, what happens is, is I tremble at the presence of God or any representation of Him. There was no need to tremble. He said, no, I've come peaceably. And so then, it says, uh, uh, he says, to sanctify themselves and come to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, verse 5, and called them to the sacrifice, verse 6. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord, he, By the way, he refused Eliab for the same reason he refused Saul. Eliab was a rebel. And you'll see that in 1 Samuel 17. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. And then Jesse called a maid Shammah to pass by. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready, and with all the beautiful countenance and goodly to look to, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. That's specific, isn't it? Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The next verse says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. What I want us to see here is that in rejecting Saul, God says, old man out, new man in. At this point, do we know who God's choice is for ruling Israel? Well, then tomorrow, Saul gets booted off and David takes the throne, right? didn't happen that way. This is where it becomes such a clear and accurate picture of the Christian life. David has been anointed. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, I want to turn there and read that quickly. Uh, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2.36, he says this about the Lord Jesus. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's saying the anointing of God the Father is on Jesus Christ to save and to rule. Truth? That's what he's saying. And so then what we have is the rejection of Saul... And the appointment of David, but here's the problem. They're both living in the kingdom at the same time. It's not as though the day David was anointed that Saul just, poof, vanished, he's done. No, Saul was still there. There are those that teach when you get saved that there's an eradication of your old nature. That is a lie. It'll make Christian life make no sense. It'll convince you you're lost even though God has saved you. It'll confuse you because that's not in the Bible. You read the book of Galatians, the Bible says there's a struggle between the flesh. There's a warfare between the flesh and the spirit. Remember what the children of Israel said? We want someone to fight our battles. But they got someone who became their worst enemy. Their king was their greatest foe. Because he could no longer win the battles because of his rebellion. 
May I say this today? The greatest foe you face is the person you look at in the mirror in the morning. The greatest foe I face is the person I look at in the mirror in the morning in the sense of flesh. Flesh has to, it has to be destroyed. Uh, yet, what we see then, there's the request for a king, the rejection of the king and his replacement in that. Thirdly, there was the retaliation of a king. Look at 1 Kings chapter 8, or 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. You know the, the story. Verse 1. This is just following David slaying Goliath. So here's what happened. David did what Saul could not do. Saul sat in his tent trembling at Goliath while David went out and slew him with a sling and a stone. Does that sound familiar? That we've been made free from the law of sin and death by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus? For what the law could not do and that it was weak? God sent His Son and God in Jesus Christ did what the flesh could not perform? Not what the flesh would not, but what the flesh could not. Perhaps the flesh could not because it will not. <laughs> you with me tonight? But God sent His Son, and what happens is, and hear me well tonight, the flesh is offended at the success of Jesus Christ. Because what happens is we have to acknowledge, not only can I not save myself, I cannot live the life I'm called to live in my strength and power. And the flesh is offended because the flesh is utterly proud. The flesh is just like Saul. I'll be the one that's important. No one will take my place. I'll get the credit. Even when David fought battles and won, guess who took the credit? Saul took it. When his own son, Jonathan, went out and won battles, you know who Saul said did it? I did it. The flesh is rotten to the core. Paul said, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth what? No good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Don't you think Saul wanted Goliath dead? We know he did. Don't you know that he knew he should go kill that giant? But he couldn't because he was a coward. Now I say this, the flesh is cowardly. It's ruled by fear. It's ruled by lust. It's ruled by pride. And it's rotten to the core and not fit to run our lives. And the sooner I learn that I, in my own natural state, deserve one thing, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Period. Death is all my rotten flesh is worthy of. Nothing more. Christ is worthy to rule and worthy to reign. And so then, yet we'll say there was retaliation of this king. Chapter 18, verse 1. Chapter 17, David kills Goliath. You would think Saul would say, praise God. Well, he was fine with that until David stole his praise. (laughs) And it came to pass when he made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to to meet King Saul with uh, tabrets with joy and with the instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth. And the saying displeased him. And he said, 
They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. What can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. Verse 10, it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. Verse 11, and Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. Verse 12, and Saul was afraid of David. Don't miss this. There is something in our rotten flesh that is afraid of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're afraid of Him replacing us. Replacing and getting glory that we want for ourselves. Replacing our decision making. Replacing what we want. We want what rightfully may say this. At this point, when Saul is resisting David's rule in that kingdom, he is literally resisting God. God had said, that's my man. That's my pick. And Saul said, but he ain't mine. I'm going to kill him if I get the chance. Here's the marvelous thing. How much effort did Saul put into destroying David? Tremendous. And what was the end of his effort? His own own destruction. You know what? David being a type of Jesus Christ, our flesh opposes him and says, I resent his rule. I resent his authority. I resent his glory. I resent... You know what? If we could live the Christian life in such a way where we could tell everybody how we got it done, we'll do it. That's why there's so many... Christian books. This is how I lived what I perceived to be the perfect little Christian life. And we write about how we did it and how we developed these ideals and all this stuff that gives glory to me that's flesh. That doesn't give glory to Christ. It's not of God. Paul said, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. But he went on to say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. You tell me what part of Paul's life he took credit for. Did he take credit for salvation? Did he take credit for his personal sacrifice? Did he take credit for his service to the king? He said, no, that's him. And he meant it because he knew it was truth. He knew that Saul of Tarsus had no ability to produce what God required of him. And therefore Christ lived in him and by him and through him. So then, uh, in the sense that God worked by him and through him, And so Saul's desire was to be done with David, to annihilate him, to put him to death. Uh, Look at Galatians 5, if you would, quickly. Galatians 5, of course, verse 16. This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But listen to verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are the contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Meaning the flesh is so stubborn and bent on doing the wrong thing that you are hamstrung in obeying because of the flesh. Unless you hear verse 18. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. So on and so forth. I just want to establish this conflict between Saul and David is a perfect picture of the conflict between the new king and the old one. Before you got saved, who determined and what determined your decision making? I don't care if you were 4 or 40 when you got saved. There was one ruler in your life, and that was your fleshly passion. I I am going to self-preserve, self-promote, self-please. It's all about me. But when Christ was put in our hearts, God says it's got to be all about Him. And that started a conflict inside of you. May I say this? This was not a short-lived conflict. Saul chased and pursued David for some time. 
He ran him all over the countryside. He, he gathered together his forces. May I say this? When Christ gives you a commandment and something in you says, I want to obey him, your flesh says, you will not, you'll obey me. You don't give to that new king what I'm going to retain. And there's a retaliation within us against the king. And you ask me, ask yourself, what do you think was the mindset of the kingdom at this time? There were people that knew that David had slain Goliath, that he was a patriot for Judah and Israel, that he was a lover of God and a lover of his countrymen, but his king hated him. What did that cause in the land? Confusion? Dismay? People trying to figure out, who are we loyal to? They were loyal to Saul because they were afraid not to be, but many of them knew they were supposed to be loyal to David. They knew the right, but they wouldn't stand because as long as Saul was allowed to be on the throne... It's going to create inner conflict. Same. May I say this? That's true in your heart and it's true in a local church. It's true in a family. It's true in a home. When there is a divided loyalty between Saul and David, there is a deep and serious inner struggle. But now if you would finally at our final point, there was a request for a king. It was a carnal request. A request of conformity and of, uh, of complacency. There was the rejection of that king because of his rebellion. It was replaced by David. But they're both living at the same time. Therefore, there was retaliation of the king to try to destroy David, which created conflict and confusion. Number four, there was then finally, though, the recognition of the king. I want you to think about this. What kind of effort was there to keep David from becoming the next king? From a human standpoint, he should have never been king. If God had not placed him on the throne, he couldn't have survived. At one point, he had 3,000 men pursuing him on a mountainside. At another time, he, uh, he, he gets so wearied with it, he goes down and he joins the Philistines, who are the enemies of God. Then the Philistines try to out him and won't let him go to battle. When he comes back, the Amalekites have attacked him and burned his city and stolen his family. Well, you talk about an opposition. May I say this? Young people, please hear me. Everybody, but especially young people, there is a concerted full-blown effort to keep Jesus Christ from ruling in your life. God has anointed His Son to govern you and to govern me, but we have a conflict and a struggle within that says, no, that's our flesh. The world says, no, we don't want Him to rule anybody, including you. Satan behind it all says, no, but God in heaven says, yes, that's my King. And that is to be your King. And when we pray... Uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. You know what we're saying? He is the rightful king and ruler of my life. May I say they chose a king for themselves and got a rebel. But when God chose a king, the only way to have him is to submit to him. David would not take the throne like Saul tried to keep it. Saul endeavored to keep the throne by force and violence. And David said, I will not ascend the throne if God doesn't put me there and if the people don't submit to me there. God will not force His authority on your life. That's why it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus Christ will not rule you until you let Him. That's Bible through and through. The difference between submission and subjection, subjection is forced on you against your will. You have to yield your will to another when you don't want to. Submission is I willingly let that person make the decisions for my life. I'm going to be honest with you. And this, how it sits, I don't know. It's rare 
to meet a professing Christian who is truly, fully submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ in the United States of America. Rare. They are not the rule. They are the exception. That tells me flesh is still on the throne. Flesh is still determining my personal life. Flesh is still determining my practical daily living. Flesh is still determining the use of my words and my mind and my thoughts instead of the Lord Jesus Christ governing through His Word and by His Spirit. And so then we come to our final point. 1 Chronicles 12 again. There was the request for a king, the rejection of that king, the retaliation of that king, but then there was finally the recognition of the king. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. We read earlier verses 38 through 40, so I want to read that again, and then we're going to touch on some verses prior to that. 1 Chronicles 12, verse 38. All these men of war. What kind of men are they? Men of war. Remember why they originally wanted a king? So someone would fight their battles for them. Not now. If you read all of 1 Chronicles 12, it says over and over, men ready, prepared for war. Men that had said, you know what? We understand it is our responsibility to fight the foe. And a king that will lead us not away from battle or fight our battles for us, but will lead us into battle and fight with us and give us the victory. That's the king we're ready to serve. His enemies are my enemies. His foes are my... Read First Chronicles 12. That's exactly what took place. There were people even of Saul's own family that came and joined David because they said, you know what? God is for you and therefore we're for you. Let me tell you what. Young person, you have reached maturity when you're willing to accept God-given responsibility. Adult, we have reached maturity when we are willing to accept God-given responsibility instead of pawning it off on somebody else. It's the mark of spiritual manhood. Quit you like men. Be strong. Right? First Corinthians tells us. So the recognition of the king. Verse 38. All these men of war that could keep rank came with a perfect heart to Hebron. You know what that tells me? They were not there because someone else wanted them there. They were not there because David forced them to be there. They were there because from their own heart they desired to be there. No one made them. They willingly showed up for their king. They came with a perfect heart to Hebron to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest also of Israel were of what? One heart to make David king. And there they were with David three days, eating and drinking for their brethren had prepared for them. We'll stop reading right there for the moment. May I say this? They came on this day with a a perfect heart, one that was decided, one that was already made up. The mind and the heart was made up. And this was not something for one group or one tribe. The entire nation had one heart. I'll say this. God requires unity in Bonners Ferry Baptist Church. He requires it. But I'll also say this. There's only one way to obtain it. And this is the recipe. As long as any one of us is still minding our flesh, it's going to create problems. That's true in the home. It's true in my own heart. Many times I have a divided heart. I'm still listening. Oh, King Saul is still ruling my decisions. And yet here's Christ over here, and I know he ought to be. But I'm afraid to say no to Saul, afraid he might kill me. Saul rules through fear. 
David rules by faith and by love. (laughs) There's a difference, isn't there? David waited and waited and waited until his people said, he is God's choice and he is worthy of our subjection and submission. We will willingly, without any reservation in our hearts, say, you are our king. Now, he was already king, wasn't he? But when they made him king, what they were saying is, we agree with God about who ought to govern us. Now, listen, when you got saved, didn't you agree with God about who ought to save you? But isn't there also going to have to be a point where you agree with God about who's going to govern you? May I say this tonight? If you've not done that yet, you're not in fellowship with God. It doesn't matter what evidence the flesh produces to say so. That's just old Saul talking again, claiming to worship God when he really doesn't. But what happened here is there was a decision made. Don't miss this. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 16. We find this group of people, and we find among all of these people the same spirit. It's a spirit of decisiveness. May I say this? As I ponder, as we're in the new year, and I ponder the spiritual needs of Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church, I'm going to be very straightforward with you. We have great, there are strengths in this church, but our, our chief weakness is indecision, indecisiveness, tarrying between two opinions. And I say that's not maybe true of everyone, but it's a general weakness of Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church. Our strength, labor, love, service, giving, those are strengths. One of our primary weaknesses is indecision. Knowing the right way, but not... (laughs) We kind of toy with it and move toward it and then pull back and toy with it and move toward it. And and I'm I'm not ridiculing. I'm just preaching straight with you tonight. Indecision is a result of double mindedness. A double minded man is unstable in all his ways. Well, I think this is the will of God, but I would like to do this. Well, I know this is what I'll... Maybe. When Israel understood who their king was, there was one heart. There was a perfect unity. There was a decisiveness that you find here. By the way, I'll say this again. What brought about such decisiveness? What brought the nation to the point where they would say, we recognize one king, only one? The old one was dead. The old one was dead. You know what needs to happen to your flesh and mine? I am what with Christ? Crucified. Present tense. Not I was crucified. I will be. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live by the, in the flesh, I live what? By the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what Paul was saying there? I am living in submission to his authority, not under the lust of my my own flesh. How often did Paul say he died? Daily. King Saul has to be killed by the word of God. What did did Saul fall on that killed him? You remember? 1 Samuel 31, his own sword his own sword. Remember what we looked at in Sunday school this morning? The sword will either defend you or, 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 or defeat you. As we look at the Word of God, the only thing that can be done to the flesh is it must be taken back to the cross where it was slain in the person of Christ and put in its rightful place. It has no right to govern my life. My lust, ha- listen, my lust has no place in me. None. Jeff and I met a man today. He gave a testimony of salvation. 
And then he turned around and he said, well, I think, and I, I don't know if I'll get it verbatim, but pretty close. He said, I know there's sin in my life, but I think some sin is okay, and I can still have a relationship with God. And he mentioned a specific sin. I didn't. He did. It was the first, first thing he mentioned. I think I'm saved, but I do this. And then he said, I, you know, people have told me that if I'm a Christian, that's sinful, but I think I can sin and have a relation with God. You know what? He was lusting after something fleshly, something that brought him personal pleasure and personal gratification at some level, and he says, I'm clinging to that. Man may be saved. He gave a pretty good account of salvation. You can hear doubt in him at the same time. I wonder why. May I say this? Surrendering your, your will to the authority of Christ and making him king. People say, make him king, that'll save you. No, you trust him as your savior, he'll save you. But when you recognize his authority, you'll have assurance of your salvation. When you submit yourself to his authority, you'll know that God's will for your life is now in place. And may I say this? There has to be a point where you decide, you know what? I recognize Jesus Christ as my king. First Samuel 31, Saul died at the sword. Same thing that has to happen to our old flesh under the word of God. But then that brought about a decision. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 16 says, And there come of the children of Benjamin and Judah to the hold unto David. And David went out to meet them and answered and said unto them, If ye become peaceably unto me to help me, mine heart shall be knit unto you. But if ye become to betray me to mine enemies, seeing there is no wrong in mine hands, the God of our fathers look thereon and rebuke it. Then the Spirit came upon Amasai, who was chief of the captains, and he said, Thine are we, David. I love that statement, especially if you consider David as a type of Christ. And he said, And on thy side, thou son of Jesse... Peace, peace be unto thee, and peace be to thine helpers, for thy God helpeth thee. Then David received them and made them captains of the band. You know what they said? We are yours without reservation. We're on your side because God is on your side. Doesn't Jesus Christ need to be told, Lord, I am on your side. I said to that man we talked to today, I said, you know what? We talked about the constraint of the love of Christ and sin having punished and being the source of Christ's suffering on the cross. I said, you know, you can't, you can't love Christ without hating sin. And it's truth. If you're here tonight and you still coddle sin, somewhere there's lack of love for Christ and lack of His rule in life. You cannot. If we love God, we must abhor evil. Not condone it, not console it, not conceal it, abhor it. And so there was a decision made. Number two, or letter B, under the recognition of David as king, there was devotion, full-fledged devotion. Look at verse 33 of Zebulun. Now, you could read the whole chapter, and it says much about all the tribes that came and gave themselves to David. But it says, verse 33, of Zebulun, such as went forth to battle, expert in war, with all instruments of war, 50,000 which could keep rank. They were not of double heart. They, were not, they weren't still saying, man, does Saul have a son that we can raise up? Oh, some of those would come along later. Remember Abner? Abner was of double heart. He couldn't have been here on this day. He still wanted Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, to be king, and Abner lost his head for it by the hand of Joab. But the men that showed up here were not of double heart. Verse 34, And of Naphtali, a thousand captains, and with them with shield and spear, thirty and seven thousand, and of the Danites, expert in war, twenty and eight thousand and six hundred, and of Asher, such as went forth to battle, expert in war. There it is again, forty thousand. And on the other side, Jordan, of the Reubenites and the Gadites, and of the half-tribe of Manasseh, with all manner of instruments of war, 
for the battle and 120,000. You think they want somebody else to fight their battles anymore? He said, we are here to fight with you against your enemies. We don't want you to fight for us. We want to fight with you. Verse 38, all these men of war that could keep rank came with a what? Perfect heart to Hebron to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest also of Israel were of one heart to make David king. Three times it says they were not of double heart. They were of perfect heart and they were of one heart. There was oneness among them. They said, we all agree on one thing. That's the man God selected to be our king. And we agree with God about it. And we're in 100%. Is that not what perfect heart is? Listen to me tonight. When we are saying, how can I live for Christ, but still gratify my flesh? Our heart is not perfect. And it's not right. And it doesn't matter how many years you've been saved. And it doesn't matter what we know until Jesus Christ has 100% of my heart. And by the way, when he does, we live to please him and no one else. Jesus said, I do always those things that please him. I want you to answer one question tonight. Are you living your life exclusively to please Jesus Christ? And I'm going to make an affirmative statement. If you're not, your heart's not perfect. He may dwell there. He may be in there. But old King Saul is still keeping from him from his rightful place. Christ will never have his rightful place until the flesh has its rightful place. And the rightful place for the flesh is in the grave. And the rightful place for Christ is on the throne. We have created in our day a duplicitous Christianity. As I said this morning, you can just take Jesus with you and get him to stamp your life. That's wicked. If you've lost nothing to serve Christ, something's out of order. Amen? Discipleship demands a cross. And here's what happened. There was a decision. They said, we are yours. We are with you. We're ready to go with you to war against your enemies. And then... We see devotion. Their devotion was simple. This wasn't complex. It was single-heartedness. It was sincere. They were no longer wanting someone else to fight their battles. They were sincerely with David to fight with him in his battles. And it was singular. They were of one heart among God's people. Thirdly, we see not only their decision, their devotion, but their delight. Look at verses 39 and 40. And there they were with David three days, eating and drinking for their brethren had prepared for them. Moreover, they that were nigh them, even unto Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, brought bread on asses and on camels and on mules and on oxen and meat, meal, cakes of figs and bunches of raisins and wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly, for there was joy in Israel. I've spoken to you my own personal testimony so many times, but I cannot tell you the joy that was birthed in my heart in July of 1997, when finally I realized my flesh has been running my life and that's why I'm miserable. And I acknowledge, Lord Jesus, you're not only my Savior, but you are my rightful King. Now, he's had to repair and fix and straighten up a lot of junk created by Saul. But I'm going to tell you what, I wept probably for 30 minutes that night out of sheer joy. Because old flesh was where it belonged 
And Christ is where I knew he belonged anyhow. Now listen to me tonight. I don't preach this message thinking it's a random message. I believe it's selected by the Spirit of God for the hearers in this room. The struggle I've preached on tonight is real in the hearts of many people in this room tonight. Joy comes when Saul is in the grave and Christ is on the throne. You and the Spirit of God and your conscience know where you're at in this, in this battle. You and the Spirit of God. And you've got to quit. You know what the Bible says? Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. How much room should I give the flesh in my life? All I've got to do is take the Word of God and realize it's not fit for anything but death. The Bible says it's something in the mind. Reckon yourselves then to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 6. It's a reckoning. I realize my nature isn't fit for anything but death. That's why Christ had to die for me. Only Christ is worthy to rule in my life and make him king. He's already king. When we make him king, we're just in agreement with God. That's where fellowship is at. Amen?